a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we explored the topic of plastic surgery. Our first guest, Dr. Anne Nguyen, is a plastic surgeon and owner of leading Perth practice, Dr. Anne Medispa. Through her work, she's seen the lives of many people transformed for the better. Interestingly, she's also seen relationships deteriorate and even end as a result of one partner going under the knife. We were then joined by Mel Ward, mother, public communicator and former plastic surgery patient. Anne entered surgery and ultimately plastic surgery with a healthy scepticism about the role of cosmesis in reference to health. Her journey since starting her own plastic surgery clinic has been a profound one, opening up important debate and conversation about when surgery is life-enhancing or a futile pursuit. Dr Anne, welcome to The Alternative Truth. Hi, May. It's nice to be part of it. Now, I thought I'd I'd start by asking you a bit about your journey towards surgery and specifically what inspired you to go into plastic surgery. I think the truth is nobody thinks that we go into plastic surgery for the altruistic reasons because I think everywhere it's about, you know, breast implants and butt lifts and, you know, looking glamorous. But I actually went into plastic surgery after spending a some time at the Children's Hospital in Melbourne looking at uh, the kids and the craniofacial work that they did and the congenital hands. And I just thought it was a fascinating area that, wow, they could do all these cool things. Um, I never thought that I would end up in the cosmetic space because in my mind, even in my mind for throughout most of my training, I thought it was all about vanity and why are we making people who are beautiful even more beautiful. But having done a fellowship it really opened my mind to the fact that that is actually far from the truth. So when you say it opened your mind, what did you discover during the process of, I guess, your training or that fellowship that broke down some of those um, conceptions, which I know we all probably had at medical school? What changed? I think I saw normal everyday people who had an issue about some aspect of their body, whether it's a scar or their breasts are too big or not big enough or they're bothered by a bulge in their tummy after having kids or whatever it was, they're feeling a bit tired and run down or they feel a bit old and they want to freshen up and they're worried about their job prospects. So many areas of what we would think are not plastic surgery or cosmetic related people want to get those areas fixed and you wouldn't think that by addressing something like that, it can make such a powerful impact on how they see themselves and in turn, they can then go and do the things they thought they couldn't do because of um, aspects of how they looked. I'm going to ask you a controversial question. Um, I don't think there's a woman alive that doesn't feel like they've got bulges somewhere they don't want them. True. Um, 
<laughs> True, we all do. Is right? Yeah, absolutely. It happens. Bulges. Um, but as someone that also knows that, you know, there are limits to what surgery can achieve. At what point do you or do you ever feel a need to sort of say, look, surgery is one option, but maybe you should change your lifestyle, eat less, lose some weight, hit the gym? Like, is that ever part of the equation when someone presents? Oh, always, always. The number of patients who I see who I actually have to really try and get an understanding of the why. You know, it's okay to say I want breast implants or I want a tummy tuck or whatever it is that you want, but unless I kind of understand why they want to do this and what they're hoping it's going to help them achieve, then we're nowhere near the, the you know, the process to, to surgery. And so for a lot of people who come in and say, oh, make me look stunning or make me look skinny or whatever it is, but they really do need to lose 30 kilos, I will actually send them off. And, and I'm really honest about it. I'll say, you know what? Yes, I could do liposuction on you. I could do full body liposuction, which is what you've asked me to do. And I would have done my job, but I wouldn't achieve your end goal because your end goal needs you to do a lot more and feel good about yourself and be in a better headspace as well as physically to be able to get the best results. And I send them off. And most of the time I set, you know, I'll review them in six months to 12 months. And by the time we actually end up getting to surgery, if we do, we're looking at two or three or four years later. And most of them are extremely grateful that I do that. Some of them, uh, it's not physical that they need to make some lifestyle changes. Some of it is very much a mental thing and they've got emotional issues and they would benefit from seeing a psychologist. And I'll send them off to see, I've, I know a few psychologists who I work closely with and just, you know, have the open conversation that I don't think that you're emotionally ready or prepared and I think there's a lot of issues going on. What we're going to do is not going to help you and you need to go and get those issues sorted uh, before we can talk further. It's a very interesting insight and I think, I, I guess... As someone that is on Instagram and that sees a lot of people who have obviously had surgery, I'm always curious as to know for a surgeon like you, what is a red flag for you in terms of someone that's sort of presenting and asking for something that many other people ask, but you say, look, I don't think it's the right time or they're not in the headspace. Like, what are those red flags that make you concerned about someone seeking a solution through surgery? Yeah, so I think it's always about, you know, it's always about expectation management. You know, it's in the same way as someone who comes into, I don't know, I use the same similar analogies. You go into a, I don't know, a luxury car dealer and you say you're willing to spend $10,000 and no, no, but you want the best of everything. <laughs> it's not going to happen. You know, you'd be lucky to buy, I don't know, their umbrellas or something. I have no idea, but it's not going to happen. And in the same way, it's always about their expectations. If patients come in having unrealistic expectations that by fixing their nose, they're going to be able to have a major modelling career or if they're wanting, and I hear it, you know, if only I fixed all of these things, then I'll be able to find a husband. I guess, you know, someone who's had, who comes in, who's very emotionally angry or upset about so many other th issues. I guess it's, I, I don't know, There's there are a lot of cues that we, we look into because we always specifically want to find out, well, what is it they want to do? Why do they want to do it? What are their expectations or goals? And I always ask them the question, if we were to fast forward six months after your surgery, where, where do you want to be? 
if they tell me if they're a mum and they've, you know, had a few kids and they don't like their bulge in their tummy and their goal is that, you know, in six months after surgery that they can go to the pool with their kids and not, you know, not feel like they have to sit on the sidelines and they can jump in with them, then I think, well, that's quite realistic. Whereas if they tell me that they want to be a bikini model six months down the track, then I'd be like, hmm, unless you're a model beforehand. You know, it, it, I guess it just depends, but we do, you can sense, um, and there are screening questions that my staff ask to, you know, in the pre-consultation stage to see if they're an appropriate candidate. Um, we often ask them also to send in pictures of what they look like now and what they'd like to look like, because that gives us a good idea as well of, of, you know, their goals. And we say that because social media is awash with pictures and, you know, we want us to be able to visualise because you can't totally understand what someone wants to achieve. Um, and also, I mean, there are other things we ask, you know, we always ask them, so on a scale of zero to 10, if you were to rate how you see your tummy, for example, what would you rate it? And then fast forward after surgery, what would you be happy with? So if they tell me they're a zero and they want to be a 10, well, I'd be like, well... I think there's a lot of work there before we're going to get there and a lot of that work might be in the headspace. Um, but if they tell me, well, you know what, I think I'm about a three or a four and I would be happy with a seven or an eight, I'm like, well, that's quite reasonable because I think we can do that. I guess the media as they are today. I'm curious to know, are we seeing more people coming in with quite lofty expectations? Absolutely. I think particularly social media because... And, and, and they're the, the red flags. The, the patients who come in and I have them, they bring their laptops in and they've got a catalogue of hundreds of breast augmentation before and after photos and critiques on every single element of what's good about each one and what's not so good. It's like, ah, uh, yeah, I need to have this discussion about what I can do is different to, you know, making a vase, setting it and putting it in a kiln decorating it, doing what you need. It's going to have a few chips and whatever yeah. along the, over the years, but it's going to stay pretty much how it is. Soft tissues and the body doesn't heal that way. It's not the same. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to get you to any of those points that you're expecting. It, it's hard. People will analyse everything because it's all out there and they they don't come in saying, I just want beautiful breasts. They come in and say, well, I want this implant, this profile, this texture. I want you to put it under this, you know, this scar and it needs to be performed this way, this technique. It's quite, it's, it's, it's changed. I think the amount that's available on the internet and through social makes it really challenging to manage patient expectations. So do you think they've got the more information they're sort of taking the decision-making away from the surgeon, but also they're placing more expectations on you to execute. Absolutely. And I sort of say, you know, if you're after a technician, I'm not the person. And fair enough. I mean, I guess the other thought I've had is like, is there a shift in the, or is there, what is the, the pattern of genders, age groups, demographics of people, I guess, that are presenting, asking for things which just can't be achieved? Yeah, I don't know. I think, I mean, you'll be surprised, but I think it's at all age age groups because everything's so available now. Um, the young ones have a particular mindset of what they all want to look like and I guess it is influenced by a lot of celebrities. Uh, you know, the Kylie Jenners of the world have changed uh, a lot of perspectives about 
a lot of young women and what they want to look like. Um, but at the same time, you know, the more mature age group also go online and and have ideas of how they want their facelifts to look like. It's interesting. I mean, I've looked at the Kardashian family and it's pretty clear they've had work done. <laughs> I mean, is, is that the, um, I mean, what's your view on it? Like, is it, is that beauty or is it a bit much for a 21-year-old? Oh, I think, I mean, I think there have been some positives which most people disagree with uh, me on that point. Uh, but there've also been a lot of, you know, the, I guess it's just, I guess it's just what's popular and what's in and what's trending. I don't know, back in when I grew up, it was all about the waifs, you know, the Kate Mosses and everybody wanted to look, you know, oh so natural and very, very thin. Uh, whereas now the change has gone completely different and it's all about curves and the more curves, the better. And so I guess, you know, for those who are a bit curvy, it's a good thing. <laughs> that, you know, that's that's an attractive look. But I guess if you're not built that way, it's always going to be a struggle to get there. Uh, it's just, it's all about just trying to draw the line between, you know, okay, it's okay if that's what they want, but you've got to be realistic and sort of see, you know, you can't achieve that with one procedure. You have to be committed to doing years and years of constant work to achieve something that might not even be achievable. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, one one of the things that I guess I wonder about is if you're starting surgery in your teens, and I don't know, do you have a cutoff, like a bottom, like an a, an age where you'll say you're too young to be making this decision? Is is there an age of consent for plastic surgery? Yeah, the age of consent is 18. Uh, and the guidelines, the medical board guidelines, uh, are very strict about that. And if you're under 18, you need to meet multiple criteria. So you need a psychological assessment, you need your GP and parental support in that decision. There's quite a significant cooling off period. So you wouldn't do, you know, plastic surgery in an under 18-year-old unless it was something like prominent ears or they were having, you know, major back and neck issues from, you know, gigantic breasts. Um, but not, I mean, you wouldn't be putting breast implants in young ones or... I don't know, doing butt lifts and those sort of things. I don't. But as soon as you hit 18, you can have a butt lift. I know, it's bizarre, isn't it? Yeah, as soon as you're 18, you can have your lips done, you can have whatever else you like done. We actually see young girls come in and have their lips done and they bring their mums in and they've met all the criteria, but they want their lips done because all their friends have their lips done. That's interesting. I mean, it certainly wasn't happening when I was at high school or uni, but... Um, no, <laughs> no. don't think I even had the money. You have it done. <laughs> I, um, I'm, I'm just wondering, though, what do you think the maintenance is going to be like? Like, flash forward, if you're getting your lips and your bum done at 18... You're always going to be doing it for the rest of your life. Like, at what interval? Lips probably every six, six to nine months, and... Yeah, butt lifts have sort of, they're not something that that's that common, which is good because there have been lots of safety concerns about uh, butt lifts. It's a lot more labour intensive. I mean, but even breast augmentation, it's supposed to be that every eight to 10 years you need to have them removed and replaced. So there's maintenance with lots of things that are partly cosmetic. We're all aware that plastic surgery has positive and life-changing benefits, but do you feel sort of as a professional now with a significant track record in the space that 
we need to address some of the upstream drivers that are pushing people to come and consult you and the fact that you have to um, siphon people off for psychology. Does that suggest to you that as a society we perhaps have an under or over emphasis on certain things? Oh, absolutely. I think there's no doubt that a, there's, you know, a lot of things have changed because of um, what we're exposed to. And I think, you know, when we were growing up, it was a Dolly magazine and that was probably your biggest fix or Cosmo. And that's how you found out about things or your friends if they shared. Um, mm. But now anyone can go online and find out anything and we're bombarded with pictures of of not only, you know, famous people, but just normal people, everyday people who are having things done and looking glamorous and got filters on their photos and and it psychologically affects how we see ourselves, I think, because we all want to look good. And what is the driving force behind looking good? I don't know. I'm sure it's got to do with everything that we're exposed to in the world. And it'd be great if we came from a space where, you know, you didn't even know what everyone else looked like and you didn't even know if that's how we're supposed to look, but you accepted that that's great. And then if there was something that really bothered you, then of course you'd do something or you'd consider doing something about it if it really affected your self-esteem. But I don't know. I think... I think that's just the world that we live in. It is geared towards how things look. and But then again, you know, humans are not silly. We all know what looks attractive as well. And so, you know, we want to, if we're going out on a Friday night, we want to wear a nice dress or nice jeans or we want to look good. So I think there's a lot more to it than just, I don't know, what how we're influenced by society, I think, our own, but then again, maybe our own pressures that we put on ourselves or our own desires are driven by the different world that we live in compared to when we grew up when I don't think I knew what half of these things were and I wouldn't even know if if it was important because it sticky, didn't matter. Sticky question. Do you think that when it comes to men and women that what's being driven is being driven by, you know, the other, like other people saying, you know, whether it's potential partners or current partners, or is the drive to, is the drive to change oneself coming from within? That's a hard question. I mean, I think if someone came into me and said, I'm going to have breast implants because my partner says my boobs are too small, then I would tell them, I think that you need to find another partner because that's just that's just not not a good reason to do something. I think there has to be some sort of innate desire to change something about yourself if you really don't like it. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I think we, we often have this discussion uh, amongst colleagues about how what we see on social media influences what we think the opposite sex should look like. I mean, the, the rise of labiaplasty and the number of women who who come in seeking a labiaplasty to improve their intimate area because they're worried about what a potential partner would think or about that area. And, and it blows me away because I, I honestly think, well, why would it? If they're that close to you, then surely that says to me, the rest of it doesn't matter, surely. <laughs> like, I'm sure they're not going to look at it. But I guess if everything's airbrushed, for it to be visible to the world when it comes to a female 
vulval area, then maybe we all think it's supposed to look a particular way and if it doesn't, then we worry that that's going to affect so many other elements. I see it in the space of women who then have felt really, you know, down about themselves and they have elements of their bodies fixed and then suddenly they're feeling really confident, they've found what they believe is their self-worth and they've started asking for more. And and I think I've seen relationships break up because, you know, women have felt that, you know what, I felt crap about myself, I lowered myself because I didn't think I was worth it and now that I know I'm actually better than than that. It's got nothing to do with how I look, but I actually feel like I know that I am all of these qualities that have been sidelined for so long that now I think I should be treated better and I expect, you know, expect more. Um, and I'm not going to settle for for what I previously settled for. Does that kind of make sense? Totally. It's, um, yeah, I see it a lot actually. And it's a bit disturbing for me. It's, it was very confronting at first because I thought, oh, I don't want to be the one responsible for those those sort of issues. But and then at the same time, if they're a happier person and they've gone on to do more things because they feel confident and empowered, then that's that's not a bad thing. It's a positive thing. It's just sad that people sometimes feel that because of how they look, they're worth less. And so therefore they settle for less. That bothers me. Yeah. I mean, I think that is the really sticky question that comes up in listening to you speak about that because do we as a species treat each other based on the way we look? Yeah, and I think there is an element of that being true because I think, you know, you know, and it just happens with everyday things and it shouldn't and we all know that it shouldn't, but subconsciously it does. You know, I've travelled before where I've come out of work consulting, I'm, you know, in professional gear, I look good and you get treated really well when you go, you take, you know, take a flight. And then there are times when I look like I've just jumped out of bed and I'm in the <laughs> sloppiest clothes because I've got a travel long haul flight and I'm still, you know, I might still be in business class, but people look at you as though, should you be here? It's, <laughs> it's, it, you know, or if you're dressed well, people want to help you for some bizarre reason. It's... I don't know, it's weird psychology, but it's true. Um, I've had, you know, similar stories from patients who after they've changed elements of themselves, they're suddenly valued more based on how they look. But maybe it's because they feel like they are more confident so they are not going to present themselves in, you know, in a way that makes them more vulnerable. I don't know. I, I see so many patients who it's not about their relationships that has affected how they feel about themselves, but it's professionally and suddenly they feel more confident and they speak up and they put their hand up to, you know, do more at work, apply for, you know, promotions, all sorts of things. It sounds to me like there's also an element of our appearance that ties back to how we treat ourselves um, Absolutely. I think that's the biggest thing. We think we're worth it and we're more likely to look after ourselves and do more when we feel good about ourselves. It's interesting. And at the same time, when you're feeling, you know, crappy about yourself, it's actually quite normal. You know what? I'm just not going to bother today because I can't be bothered. I look 
terrible anyway, so what's the point? And that becomes this negative cycle whereby you stop going out and you stop doing things you like doing because you don't think that you look okay and not that that really matters to the world, but it matters to you. Thank you so much for your time and um, lending us your perspective. It's been brilliant. It's been lots of fun. Thanks so much, May. What struck me about Dr Arne's experience was the clarity and pragmatism with which she viewed the role of surgery. Surgery is powerful. However, it isn't a cure-all. Changing your nose can absolutely be life-enhancing, yet even to a surgeon who's incentivized to operate, there's a growing population of people whose perceptions of themselves can't be healed with physical change. Her observations about the culture we swim in and our perceptions opened up some other questions. In a world where we can access plastic surgery, injectables, and a myriad of cosmetic interventions, what's normal? Are we becoming desensitised and cut off from the natural process of ageing? Where will the cultural trend of body modification lead us? So let's hear from a patient who's walked this road, Mel Ward. In 2007, after breastfeeding her first child, and in a bid for self-improvement, Mel underwent a breast augmentation surgery. But not only did Mel not feel better, she felt worse. It began a decade-long struggle with chronic illness, from recurrent infection, anxiety, depression, through to skin issues, hair loss and bloating. Mel experienced relentless, relapsing, remitting symptoms as a result of surgery. Mel, welcome to The Alternative Truth. Thank you. Hello. So I thought I'd ask first to take us back to the time when you decided to undergo plastic surgery. What was going on for you? What informed that decision? How, how were you feeling and what was the experience like? Yeah. So it was all the way back now in 2007 that I had breast augmentation. So growing up, um, I was always really small, um, very athletic, so it never really bothered me. And I was never conscious of or felt self-conscious at all about my breasts. I was teased a couple of times, but it was water off a duck's back. So once I hit my late teens, early 20s, I met my now husband um, and he was a professional footballer at the time with the AFL. And I entered into this community of women who were just breathtakingly beautiful and never being self-conscious about my body or anything else growing up, I was suddenly propelled into this environment where women were very self-conscious about how they looked and they were judged on their looks. And it seemed to be this, um, this huge focus for these girls and these women. And um, so we got married and uh, we had our first child and we were still within this community of footballers and their wives and partners. And after I'd had my first child, um, I sort of, you know, there were a few different reasons, but, you know, obviously you breastfeed, your your breasts change, your body changes when you've had children. Um, And so I began to feel a little bit self-conscious about those, about my breasts after breastfeeding. And and as well as as that, I started to, which I'd never done before, but I started to compare myself to these other women physically. And it was an odd feeling for me. Um, And so then I started to explore different options around what could I do to make myself physically stack up to the beauty, external beauty of these women that I was surrounded by. And there was nothing else I was really self-conscious about other than my breasts. 
So it seemed like the logical path to go down. And I started doing a little bit of research about breast augmentation. I went and saw a couple of plastic surgeons. Um, and I went down the path of, of having my, my breast implants put in. What was that like going to see plastic surgeons? I mean, many people listening will never have seen a plastic surgeon, but yep. it might have crossed their mind. Was it easy? It's really easy. I booked the appointment. I sat down with her. I explained what, you know, where I was feeling uncomfortable, what my issues were. Um, we talked about the different options, the different products that were available to me. Um, you know, I, I obviously asked about the safety of the product, um, what sort of tests had been conducted on the product. Um, they told me they were extremely safe, that, you know, a, a truck could run over them and they wouldn't rupture. Um, in the case of a rupture, that would be quite serious, but it never happens. And um, and it was actually probably a 30 to 45 minute consultation um, in which during that consultation, I decided that I'd go ahead with it. So they didn't ever turn around and you didn't have a conversation about aesthetics. They didn't go, you know what? You're a young woman. You no. Know, you, you know, are you sure you want this right now? No, it was never a question of whether or not I should be going down that path. It was, here's what's available. Here's what we can put in. Let's do some measurements to see what would fit into your chest cavity. Um, the conversation around safety. Um, and then it was pretty much, when can we pencil you in? So there was no downside presented really? No, which was interesting because I had a female surgeon um, and because I was so young and my body obviously was going to keep changing um, at age 26, I'd obviously yeah. had a child a year earlier, so things might change. Um, I believe now there are options for things like fat transfer, things that aren't so dra as drastic as having a medical device implanted into your body. Um, but none of that was actually brought to the forefront in that consultation. So it was really interesting. Yeah, right. Interesting. So then from the time of consultation to when you're kind of on the table, how long was that? I think it was six weeks after. So she was quite booked up. Um, but it was straight in there. So I think I had one more appointment with her just to finalise yep. everything um, and to make sure that we had the correct implant for my body type. Um, and then after that, it was it was the green light, off we go and into surgery we went. Okay. And was it that easy? What happened? It was simple. Look, there was pain and discomfort afterwards. It was a day procedure. So I think I was admitted early in the morning. I think I had the procedure at around 11am. Um, and then I was uh, discharged from hospital late in the afternoon and sent home. Um, and everything was fine. I didn't have any complications. You know, it was going from a... Um, a declined, if I was seated up in an upright position and I would decline, um, back down, it would, I'd have significant pain and same as coming back up on an incline, I would have some pain in my chest. Um, so I was on strong pain medication. But aside from that, the recovery time was pretty quick. Yeah. And so tell us what happened after that point. You kind of have the initial, I guess, healing from the trauma of the surgery itself. Mm. But then were you sort of just business as usual? Business as usual. Um, I was, as I mentioned, a really physical, sporty person. So I love the gym. So I had some restrictions for the first six weeks after that. Certain exercises I couldn't do. So any sort of chin-ups or chest press or push-ups or anything like that, I couldn't do. Um, so it was business as usual, but I quickly discovered that prior to having the surgery, I felt as though I was going to feel immediately better about the way I looked in the mirror and that it was going to make this miraculous change about how I felt in comparison to the women that I was surrounded by. And I quickly realised uh, after having the surgery that I, in fact, didn't really feel better about how I looked. Did you feel happier at all? Like, surely there was a bit of, oh, 
here I am. I, 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 internally, I, I maintain that I, no, I don't think I did feel better. I think I achieved, um, external compliments. So you look great. They look fantastic. Um, you know, compliments from girlfriends, you know, and whatnot, but, and that was great. But within myself, I, I didn't actually feel better. Right. So that inner voice was kind of yeah, contradicting. Absolutely. And it was it was confusing because I honestly thought that I would go and do this and once I did that, that I would feel worthy to be part of this community that I was within um, and that I would have this sense of, I guess, heightened self-confidence within myself and how I looked. But it was the complete opposite to that for me. So what was going on? I think now, I mean, I can, I can say now that I'm 39, so it's, you know, 11, 12 years later that I think for me, I was placing my self-worth in the hands of others, that it was all external, um, that it, it didn't really matter, that people were still going to love me and accept me for who I was um, instead of for how I looked. And I think, you know, I, it could be a million reasons why I, I decided that that was so important to me and, you know, there's lots of, you know, psychological reasons why people do things like this, I think. But, um, yeah, but retrospectively, I think that it was definitely placing my self-worth in the hands of others and looking outside myself to feel good about myself. But that's only now that I've realised that after doing a lot of work on myself. So tell us a bit, and there's obviously, this is quite a big story. Yeah. Tell us a bit about, I guess, the events that unfolded after having breast implant surgery in terms of your health and well-being, because I know, I know that things weren't all smooth sailing, and mm. here we are, sort of twelve years down the track, and you've had them removed. Mm. So what what exactly happened between that moment of going, hang on a minute, this didn't give me quite what I wanted, and the decision you you sort of made to kind of reverse that mm. surgery. Yeah. So I had obviously the the psychological side of things, which was not feeling better about myself externally. But then I began to experience physical symptoms, um, illness, which I'd never experienced before I'd had my plastic surgery. So I was getting regular um, sinus infections. I was... Uh, succumbing to tonsillitis, you know, three, four times a year. Uh, just a lot of immune problems. So um, f- the flu, colds um, and things like that. And that was probably progressing over maybe a three to five year period. And I would go and see my GPs and I'd be prescribed with antibiotics to try and fix that problem. Um, and so then because the antibiotics weren't really fixing the issues that I had at that time, I started to look at alternative uh, health options. So I started to seek naturopathy um, assistance through a naturopath, Chinese doctors. Um, I went and got my DNA tested because it was so confusing that I was just conducting a really healthy lifestyle, eating so well, eating clean, getting eight hours sleep, going to the gym, doing all the right things, yet I was still sick. Every couple of months, something would come up. 
I would then experience after that five-year period, extremely heavy periods. You know, my cycle was all over the place. I began to experience issues with my thyroid. Um, It was literally protruding out of my neck. Again, go back to the doctor's blood tests, you know, what's going on, really healthy, really you know, eats well, all these sorts of things, taking Chinese herbs now because I'd seen a naturopath and I'd had my DNA tested. So I was actually eating and supplementing to my DNA. What the hell's going on? Why am I always sick? So then we get to, you know, 2000 and the end of 2017 and a good friend of mine who I'd worked with, um, she'd actually reached out to me and She had made the decision to have her breast implants removed. She'd done a lot of research on breast implants because she was experiencing the same sort of issues that I was with her immune system uh, and with her hormonal system as well. So she said to me, have you ever considered that it could be your breast implants making me sick? And I laughed it off at the time and I thought, you know, I entertained it with her, but I got off the phone to her and I just sort of thought to myself, oh, that's ridiculous. That's what what's one thing got to do with the other? So on this was two thousand and and seventeen. Okay, so this is a long time. Yeah, so I'd been sick for such a long period of time, um, and I tried everything, and she knew it, and um, and so I she gave me some literature. She emailed me through some literature about breast implants and what's actually inside a breast implant, how it can actually affect your endocrine system, how it can affect your immune system. Um, what it can do to your skin, what it can do to you mentally as well. Um, a lot of people that have had breast implants, they will experience depression and anxiety, which was one of the symptoms that I also had. So um, so I looked into all of this research and, um, and I just started to connect the dots myself and I actually started to think that perhaps it was, that it was my breast implants that were causing me to be so ill, which I then took to my GP and I showed him all the evidence-based studies that I'd Um, that I'd looked up. And he actually agreed with me that this is probably causing the issues that we've been dealing with for the past, you know, nearly 10 years. So you had the same GP for that entire time? The whole time, the same GP. And not once was I asked the question, do you have a foreign object in your body? Interesting. Did you ever go back to your surgeon? I did. I actually phoned my surgeon um, and discussed it with um, her personal assistant and mentioned that I thought this was the case. And again, it was dismissed. Um, What, so she didn't even say, look, come in, see me? No, no, it was dismissed and she's heavily booked. um, And look, it wouldn't be that that's doing it. Um, And I just think the attitude from her personal assistant put me off. Uh, So then I started to look at other plastic surgeons in Melbourne who were... Um, open to the idea that this could be an issue for myself and for other women. So what? how would you measure the impact of this kind of period of being ill? Like it, you think, oh, I had a cold. Well, everyone has a cold. But you're talking about more than just the winter flu. You're talking about relapsing, remitting, continuous, mm. back-to-back. Like what, what sort of impact did it have on your life? Like what changes occurred for you? Oh, massive. It's, you know, I've I've worked really hard. I went to university. I've enjoyed a career in uh, media sales, a small stint in producing radio. Um, you know, I was unable to hold down a job mm. um, because I was always ill. And you can't have someone coming in, you know, on a Monday and unable to work out the rest of the week until Friday. Um, so professionally it affected me. Um, I've got two children. Um 
and I was unable to, you know, do all the activities that I'd like to be able to do because I had no energy. I was constantly tired. I was chronic fatigue syndrome. I experienced glandular fever. So I was unable to parent the way that I would like to parent. You know, my faith in the medical profession as well, just having that confidence to Mm. go and see a doctor about what was going on. I would often neglect myself because I just thought perhaps I was a hypochondriac. Perhaps they wouldn't believe me what I was going through. And, uh, you know, my relationship with my husband as well. I mean, I was this sickly person that he had to look after. And, and so it put a great, a tremendous amount of strain on our marriage as well. Yeah. Enormous. I mean, so on the day that you went in to see your GP, like what happened at that point? Once I showed him all the information that I had and he read through it and he looked at me and dead in the eyes and said, Mel, you're right. I do believe that this is what's happening to you. It was such an emotional day. I just broke down. Mm. I was extremely emotional because it was finally somebody is actually taking me seriously um, and is going to dive deeper into what's causing all of these issues as opposed to just dealing with the symptoms of what I was going through. Um, So that was huge for me. Um, I felt like I had an ally. Yeah. I mean, did he at that point or had he prior to that been searching around? Because, if I mean, you've got a young woman who's got two children. I just think from the perspective of any doctor, you'd be going hunting for something. You'd oh, gotcha. be doing a lot of tests. And, gotcha. I mean, had he started to think there's something else I've got to find? Look, unfortunately, it was about the blood test results. It was about... Um, Every other test that I'd had, like a lot of the times, things would come back completely fine and normal. So your blood tests were all normal? Most of them were. Towards the end, prior to my surgery, we had a a few issues with my bloods. Um, It was always looking at the blood test results. It was always looking at the throat swabs. It was just diagnosing based on this evidence as opposed to looking at the cause. Um, I think that was where we had the issue with this, with my yeah. particular GP. I don't know if that happens everywhere in general practice, but um, for me, it definitely did. Yeah. So where to from that moment? Like you've you've both sat there and gone, oh my God, this is, this is really happening. You've mm. been having these kind of reactions for over a decade now yeah. and you're probably quite worn down yeah. by yeah, that point. I was, but it was almost like the lift that I needed to then go, right, now we actually know that there is a, a link. Uh, I then contacted the friend that rang me to yeah. alert me to this and broke down on the phone to her. We were both so emotional. She'd just had her own so- surgery, which was really successful. Um, and I decided to go and see her surgeon that she recommended yep. to then look at the option of having these breast implants removed. So I booked the appointment with this um, with this surgeon, Dr. Mansour Merkazimi. And when I went and saw him and told him all about my symptoms and he said, oh, yeah, this is just so common at the moment. There's definitely a link between breast implants and women with the issues that you've got. I mean, is it all breast implants? What were you told? I think from his perspective, he was being very careful with how mm. he worded it. Um because it, you don't want to scare people. There are a lot of women that have got breast implants yeah. and it is a scary thought to think that you've got this ticking time bomb in your chest. So he was very careful. I think, you know, yourself as a doctor, you need to kind of have scientific proof that one thing is causing another thing. And I think um, he did suggest that it wasn't just the texture breast implants that were causing issues, that it was all breast implants. Um, and in the research that I did, I did discover that, 
all breast implants contain around 42 different chemicals, um, 22 of them are neurotoxic, all of them. Unless you've got saline breast implants, which, you know, their opinion out there is that they are safer and and healthier for you, but in fact they're still surrounded by a silicon shell uh, Mm. that contains all these chemicals in them. Um, So he was very careful, um, but it's not just textured implants, I believe, that are causing, um, causing these issues. From that moment onwards, what you're obviously still suffering with the, the symptoms. Mm. What happened? So I had them removed, um, feeling of relief mentally, physically as well. A lot of my symptoms have subsided. So I would say I'm probably... Did your bloods improve? My bloods improved. So yeah, so my CA125 markers, which is a cancer marker, they tripled just before my surgery. Um, they'd found a lesion on one side and they discovered a rupture in the other side. So... Yeah, there was a lot going on um, and it was quite scary because they yeah. did think that I was um, that I would have cancer. Is that what prompted you to go forward with the surgery at that moment? Uh, no, I was doing it anyway. Yeah. We discovered that because you had to have mandatory blood tests before you go through with the surgery. Yeah. yeah, so my bloods have improved since then, since I've had them removed. And I would say 80, around 80% of my symptoms have disappeared. I do occasionally have some flare-up with it. Um, it's not all perfect because I did have a major rupture. So if you consider that you've got all these chemicals leaking into your system and they're sitting in your cells. So it's going to yeah. take some time for all of that to detoxify. Um, but aside from that, I'm, I would say 80% healed and feeling a lot better and physically and mentally. So what has changed in terms of your health now that you've had the removed? Obviously, there's initial relief. Yeah. So obviously, the CA125 markers have gone down. I've got so much more energy than I ever did. I experience less severe periods, which is really good. Um, mentally, I feel so much better within myself. I feel like I'm back to me and what I'm supposed to be as opposed to what I thought I was supposed to be. And, you know, my relationship with my children has improved out of sight because I'm able to do things with them um, as well as my husband. I just feel so much relief from having them removed. So I'm going to ask you what might feel like a curly question, Mm. which is if you knew then what you know now, what would you say to that 26-year-old? Oh, it is a Kelly question and I've thought about it a lot. I, it's funny because I've got a teenage daughter and it doesn't matter what I say to her. I think that I would tell her that to look a little bit deeper as to why you're going to do this. Is it because what you're seeing out there is what you believe to be true? Um, we're saturated with you know, images on social media, advertising, where, you know, there's this idea of the perfect body, the perfect face, the perfect skin, the perfect eyes. And I think that if we're going to explore such serious, and it's, it is a, a serious, it's, a, it's an operation. Um, if we're going to go down that path, we need to have all the information first and foremost. We need to make sure that we are providing true informed consent so we understand what we're actually doing. And thirdly, we need to look within. We need to understand why we want to go through such an extreme procedure in order to feel better about ourselves. And that's what I would say to my 26-year-old self, for sure. Mel, it's been an absolute privilege to talk with you today. And likewise. Thank you for sharing your story. It's, it's unsettling and riveting all mm. at the same time. Thank you for having me. Listening to Mel speak, I had rising discomfort. 
discomfort sensing that plastic surgery, when framed as a consumer good, creates perverse incentives to engage. Apart from this, Mel's story made me think about the unspoken secondary costs that may be invisible at the time of decision-making, yet irreversible afterwards. Not everyone will have a toxic reaction to plastic surgery. In fact, most won't. But should we be at least asking those questions going in? Interestingly, both guests pointed to the relationship-shifting impact of changing one's appearance. For all the rhetoric about looking inwards, how we look has a pervasive impact on our experience of life. As humans, can we ever really de-identify from our bodies, or should we even want to? Thank you once again for joining us on The Alternative Truth, and join me in the rest of the series, where we dive into, are contraceptives dangerous to women's health? Produce of circumstance, what should we really be eating? Is the mainstreaming of porn damaging behavior? And energy medicine, does it work? Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Grinberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au. Listener.